Happy Tuesday, all things Montessori community. I'm so excited. It's the third episode of the teacher series. This has been so much fun. I knew it was going to be fun. And ever since I've been chatting with these amazing teachers that have been in the classroom and just hearing about their experiences, it's been so fun. So this week, my good friend Sarah Loden is on the podcast. Sarah and I met when we were working together at a beautiful school in Vienna, Virginia, and she is a primary teacher. So it's so great because I end up learning a lot about primary education and it was so it was just so fun to have her on. So I really hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Patreon. Thank you to all of our existing patrons. I wouldn't be able to do this podcast without you. That is a fact. I have to pay for, you know, a platform to host the podcast, recording equipment, our website, things like that. So I really, really appreciate all the support and the messages and the love. Thank you so much. And speaking of that, if you know a friend or a parent or a teacher friend or anybody who you think would like this podcast, please tell them about it. You know, I find that the way that I found out about all of my favorite podcasts is just because somebody told me about them. Sometimes I look on my own, but sometimes, you know, word of mouth is the best way for marketing and advertising. So just spread the word and give us a little bit of love. And I really, really appreciate it. Now, this episode's also brought to you by Sapling Supply. I was so lucky to sit down with Joe and Paul on last week's episode and talk all about Sapling Supply, Montessori Dads, and all that good stuff. I hope you had a chance to listen to it. And in honor of Montessori Dads everywhere, we are doing a limited time promotion. You can get 20% off site-wide by using our promo code MD20. Again, that's a limited time promo. You can get 20% off anything site-wide using our promo code MD20. And of course, if you ever have any questions, concerns, if you want to nominate anybody to be on the teacher series, please reach out to me, either direct message me on Instagram, you can reach out to me via Patreon, or you can always send me an email at allthingsmontessoripod at gmail.com. I truly love to hear from you and I will respond, I promise. So please reach out if you have any questions, concerns, need advice, or just maybe just need to talk to somebody. Thank you so much for listening as always and enjoy this episode. Well, I'm so excited today. I have one of my teaching colleagues and friends with me today on the podcast, Sarah Loden, a primary guide, an amazing teacher. I'm so excited. She's here. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited to talk with you. So I ask every single person that comes on the podcast, no matter what type of thing that you do with Montessori, um, I always ask what your Montessori story is. And it actually is just now dawning on me. I don't think I know yours. Mm. So I'm super excited to know. (laughs) (laughs) Montessori story. I know I I was trying to rehearse it in the car. Um, (laughs) My Montessori story. I was a teaching artist uh, for many years, doing lots of different contract work for museums and family, parents, centers. And um, I 
ran across Montessori a lot in that kind of work as I was, I felt comfortable with like, well, I mean, I was looking for content, but I also was really chasing this question of how to teach and how to convey information. And so Montessori kept coming up and a lot of these different blogs that I would go on to and read about ideas for how to be with kids, how to, how to teach with children. And then, um, just through different conversations. I mean, I really had, I I feel like I had one of those, um, it it happened. I, the, I looked at the sky and the wind blew across my face after I had this conversation with this woman about Montessori and uh, what she really sold me on was that, um, there was a Montessori school in Bali and Montessori schools only took Montessori teachers. And I was like, well, I need to go to Bali. (laughs) Montessori is clearly the answer for this. But as I looked into it, I realized it's really a lot of what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. So then where did you train? Uh, At WMI. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It was in Columbia, their kind of headquarters of that state. That's right. That's where I trained too. So then after training, where did you go? Did you end up in Bali? (laughs) (laughs) I've not gotten to Bali yet. Uh, (laughs) I went to, um, there's so much stuff with visas and I really Mm -hmm. want to jump into teaching right away. And it felt like trying to get a visa with an international school is an obstacle. Um, Mm -hmm. so I wanted to get into the classroom full time. So I went to New York for my first year. And then, um, now I am at the school where I currently teach in that's in Virginia. Nice. Nice. So what drew you to primary? Did you have sort of a choice to make? Was it always just natural that that's the age group you wanted to work with? Talk to me a little bit about that. So most of it came from all of that work I did as a teaching artist. As a teaching artist, I did end up working with children up into the high school, but I found a lot of work through um, this organization called The Song Room. I lived in Western Australia, and The Song Room is based there, and they were doing work with artists in child and parent centers. And it was for early childhood. And it was all about bringing drama and music and theater. And so I just was really working with this younger age group. And I think I just felt comfortable and natural being with that age group. So there wasn't really a question that was just like, mm-hmm. that was that's the age group that I work with. Mm-hmm. I was just talking with one of your trainers, Janet McDonald. And um, I was talking to her about primary versus elementary because I was telling her about how, you know, I've always wanted more training with Montessori. I just, cause I love it. I think it's so interesting. So I was just talking to her about it and she had something so interesting to say. And um, well, she had many interesting things to say cause she's amazing, but it really was, you know, she said in primary watching the transformation of a two and a half or three-year-old and then watching them leave when they're six is like, she said, it's just absolutely kind of breathtaking. And then I really started to think about all those milestones that they're going through. Cause in elementary, it's a little bit more, I mean, they're loud and a little rambunctious, but it's more stable. They're just learning academics. Mm-hmm. It's not like big, big milestones. So do you find that as well working in primary? The profound changes that you see as they develop? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, because they are coming. I mean, I'm just thinking about so many of these two and a half year olds that I've had start with me in the classroom who are so quiet and Mm. don't talk. In fact, I was uh, so one of the first lessons you give in the classroom, I don't know if you do this in elementary, I mean, grace (laughs) and courtesy is across the board, but how to walk in the room is something that we have to do regularly in the (laughs) the classroom, which seems so silly. And, you know, and it's so funny, all like the wording that goes around, like, you don't say this is how to walk, right? You're supposed to say, let me show you how, uh, let me show you about walking in this classroom so that it's like less personal um, when you give the lesson. But so I'm thinking about like this one child, very, very like so tiny, so quiet, so sweet looking. And I am giving this lesson on how to walk in the classroom and they moved so slowly across the room. And the other children in the group who were older, who I was really um, trying to get them to slow down a bit by giving them watch and they were like, hurry up, like yelling at, yelling at them uh, in their walking. But I happened to be being observed that day when I was giving that lesson and it by, um, by Jennifer, uh, Jennifer Shields, my trainer. And she said, you know, he looks like he's still in the subplane. Uh, mm. which means, you know, uh, lots of thinking is very unconscious for them. And, he, and since then, I have seen him already develop so much in his verbalizing and he's zooming around the classroom now. Um, mm. So, yeah. So the subplane, can you talk a little bit about that? Do they do, does the primary child from, you know, from toddler, do they come in in that subplane? Is it sort of like what does that mean exactly? We don't really talk about that in elementary. Yeah. So now I'm intrigued. Oh, well, so the subplanes, so the difference, so the four planes, right? Mm-hmm. The zero to six, six to 12, 12 to 18. Um, uh, both in the first and third plane, there's subplanes. I don't think there is this. Yeah, there's not in elementary. Okay, interesting. Okay, yeah. tell me about it. Yes, because <laughs> it's just trying to say, I think what the reason for breaking it into the two is to say that there's different even more subtle milestones within within mm. that age group. So for, I mean, you can think about it, zero to three, zero to three, they have to learn first their hand motor skills, even their right. head, their ability to move their head. And then from there, then they're getting the ability to walk and then to talk. Um, all of that is happening zero to three. So then in three to six, it's more of the identity. Um, well, identity forming and understanding of the world that's starting to happen because, and, and then the refinement of all of those motor skills. That's really why she's breaking it down is because I see, because there is so much physical development, Mm -hmm. um, emotional development, social development, communication, um, that is developing at that age range. And so then six to 12, like you're saying, it is stable then because they've been working so much to gain all of these skills, uh, from the zero to six age range. So six to 12 is more stable. And then when they get to 12 to 18, they kind of go through that rehashing of the identity, which, and they're starting to have the hormones and all of that creates new, um, 
changes in the identity that I think is the reason for splitting that into the subplanes as well in the third. That is so fascinating to me because now it totally makes sense. Because if I think about a primary age child and the little that I know from my little foundations course, there is so much going on. They're going through a massive transformation that's way bigger than learning their multiplication facts. I mean, not way bigger, it's just different. Yeah. It's just different. I think a lot of the elementary child, it's going on in their brain. They're, they're reasoning, that's the moral code, it's the hero worship, they're developing their academic skills. But you know, they're really learning how to be a person they're in learning, primary. Yes, they're learning how to person. They're learning how to use their body. Yeah. I mean, the first set of materials that we give them is the practical life where we're trying to give them the independence, the motor control, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, they have to be able to even move their hand to be able to hold the pencil. Right. And so we do just so much work just to get them to be able to hold a pencil. And the work is not giving them a pencil to be able to hold a pencil. We're giving them indirect things so that it feels natural for them to hold a pencil. Mm. So talk to me about what those skills are. So what's the trajectory? Uh, I kind of know some of it, but I'm interested to hear of how to get them to get that pincer grasp, that pencil. What kind of steps do they go through? I'm just thinking about the button. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of. But what else? All the dressing frames. Yes, the dressing frames. That's what they are. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That was part of the training that you had in the introductory course. I just, yeah, I, I mean, my foundations course was so fun. Oh my gosh. It made me want to take primary, but we just sort of did like highlights in each section. So like for practical life, we did hand washing, how to wash a table and like something else. And you know what I mean? We did like a few in each section of that if that kind of makes sense. So um, I don't really know a lot. I know kind of like the highlights, but uh, (laughs) that's it. Yeah. So yeah, the dressing frame is absolutely part of it. I mean, you have to use, so the pincer grip, the ability to hold a pencil comes from the, you know, the thumb and the fingers um, being able to pinch together kind of, I'm like making my finger gesture like a chopstick. Yeah. And so, you know, to be able to take a button in and out of the hole, you have to be able to hold the button with it. So that indirectly does get them to exercise their skill to be able to hold a button. And it Mm. also helps them actually be able to unbutton and button. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Other things we do for the pincer grip, spooning is one of the very first activities we give them too. And so spooning is the activity where you put two bowls on a tray. One of them is filled with grains like lentil, Mm -hmm. dry chickpeas, and there's a spoon. And you model how to perfectly lay out your hand and place a spoon into it and hold it. And holding that spoon is mirroring perfectly what a pincer grip and holding a pencil looks like when we model it. Mm -hmm. Children will grasp it with their whole hand. And so that's something Mm. that we're noticing and that we represent for, look, I want to show you something about how to hold the spoon. Do you notice where I put my fingers? Mm. And then we're showing the mastery of spooning over all those grains from one bowl into the other bowl. Wow. 
Yeah. It's amazing how profound just like these, like it all is. simple activities are meant to affect them in these big, huge ways, but it's just a little, just a little spooning. I know it's, it's so simple and so subtle. And what I was just thinking about is how the primary guide. So like you, Sarah, you have to have a tremendous amount of patience to continually represent and represent. And Similarly, in elementary, we have patients, but I think it's at a different level. It just looks a little bit differently because each time in primary, you're, you are the true model. Like they're literally watching every move you make. And I know you present things really slowly. So that must, did that, did you have to practice to get really good at that kind of stuff? I would imagine so, but I don't know. I know it's simple, but I'm clumsy. So I feel like I'd be a disaster. <laughs> Yes. I'm just sitting here nodding. Um, I know. I love it. (laughs) Yes. There's so much practice and so much like consciousness that goes into it. I definitely, the training um, is what heightened my consciousness of myself and how I move and how I present things. I elevated, I feel like my whole lifestyle going through the Montessori training in order to make my own house more orderly and more beautiful. Mm. Um, and that translate to the way that I am into the classroom. And even now and always, I need to remind myself to slow down myself, you know, because I have to be honest, if I see a child starting to run in the classroom and there's something (laughs) fragile in their hand, I start having like alarm bells going off where I'm like, I need to stop them. And then, so what do I start doing? I start running too, you know? Sure. And so, um, though, (laughs) I like, it's about like developing like this consciousness, like, okay, I'm seeing this happen. Yes. I'm having alarm bells happening what else can I do? How else can I intercept this moment or perhaps just let this moment go, right? Yeah. In order that I can maintain the integrity that I want to as the guide, as the model for these children in the way that I want and hope and expect um, for these children themselves. The other thing I was going to ask you about yeah. That I always love pointing out to people about the way we give lessons in primary that is just so obvious and intuitive, but I had to be told to do this, <laughs> is to not talk. Mm. So it's not only like the slowness of it, but it's the don't explain yourself while you're doing it. Mm. You, ex- you may be explained, but usually you just say, I'm going to do this so that they yeah. have all the attention on just your movement. It's funny. It's a little bit opposite in elementary because you're talking a lot. And this is something I'm very, you can see me right now. I talk with my hands and I remember it was so sweet. I was presenting, I was in training and I was with my trainer, Carol Hicks, who I love dearly. And I was presenting the grammar boxes, which is just the super fun way to learn grammar. And I was like pointing to the answer that the child is, I mean, I was literally like showing them everything they needed to know with my hands. And Carol was like, you need to sit on your hands (laughs) because in elementary, they need to visualize what's in front of them and you're guiding them with words, but me pointing and sort of almost guiding them too much with my hands was not allowing them to make the connection in their brain. So it's, 
similar yet different how, I mean, it's just because it's a different plane of development, but allowing, I do think that the patient's the letting them figure it out, that is one of the hardest things. And it's something, it's just constant reminding they'll get there. And some days you, you know, some days you're less patient and that's fine. But um, it's hard. It's even true with simple. I mean, you know, I I really do my best to give the questions back to the children. Um, Even when it comes to simple things like, uh, what was somebody asking me today? Oh, where did all this dirt on the patio come from? <laughs> you know, <laughs> where did all this dirt come? Because they had swept and they were really proud of sweeping, yeah. and then they had looked back out on the patio. Where did all this dirt come from? I said, like, Yeah, where do you think that dirt came from? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe from the trees, and it, and it came down from the sky. One thing I, whenever I would observe in primary or watch you guys, um, one thing you do, you really do, you'll ask a question like that. And then you're silent you don't say anything else. And the children are just like, like just wondering. And then they just go on and do their own thing. It's really beautiful. It's a different way of being. I've had to, I've, you know, had to stop myself. I've had to learn myself, um, I do feel like I've been working with children for a little while, though, in order to like, and this is something I've been conscious of for a very long time. Communication is so important to me. It's part of my background and my, I studied anthropology and communications in my undergrad. Um, So how I say things and the way we say things is something that I've always been obsessed with thinking about. And I just, I noticed that a lot of adults, when they talk to children, um, don't, don't give that same space. And I, and, um, and it's nothing, it's nothing that like is bad or like I look down upon them. I just think it's just, you know, we're used to talking to other adults in fast conversation and children just need, they just need more time and they need more space and the world is unfolding for them. So, right. And what I think happens with a lot of adults that I've witnessed as well is the adult will unknowingly and not on purpose, just continually be giving the child the answers when they were like, when the kid was about to say it or, you know what I mean? And, and so they don't even like what you're saying, they don't have the space to talk or to come to that conclusion. And that's, it's unfortunate. Or even to be able to put their own shoe on. Right. Well, yeah, then there's that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I see that so much in the classroom, you know, sometimes they just need, sometimes they just need to do it one or two more times. And I have, I often find that's like something I often say to the children, you know, I see how frustrated you are. And sometimes it takes two times, three times, four times, five times to figure out how to do it. Oh, what a beautiful lesson to, to show them that, you know, I mean, it's okay to fail, even if I'm not saying not putting on your shoe is a failure, but in a three-year-old's eyes, that could totally be devastating. And I think that's just amazing to give them that space. I think that's somewhere where the Montessori stuff is so like that, that this is like a gray area, right? Like with them putting on their shoes and stuff, because Montessori is all about having the control of error so that children can develop their own internal sense of wisdom and knowing rather than us, the adults telling them what to do. It's the material and the child's experience that helps them figure out what's right and what is wrong. But when children get frustrated about things like 
putting on their shoes or something like that. Or even sometimes today, you know, I'm practicing on the chalkboard with them writing their numbers and they're getting frustrated because their five does not look like the sandpaper number five that's mm-hmm. to it. And so, um, yes, that sandpaper number five is giving them that control of error that they're not doing it the way, but then it's their frustration that might keep them from persisting. And so, Gosh, what do we do then if they they don't have the the resources to feel like they can keep going? We want them to keep going, don't we? So absolutely. So then, what do we do? Because what happens if they don't want to pick up that material again because they remember being frustrated? Mm-hmm. It's a constant. It's a constant dance. I mean, I I would have children running away from me because they didn't want to do math, and I was just like, Jesus, you know. And it it was <laughs> it's hard. Because you have a, you know, with an elementary child, I can reason a little bit more, but it's still the same thing. Like that made me really upset. I don't want to do it. And sometimes what you're saying, I think is so true. We provide such a beautiful, safe environment, but even that sometimes isn't enough. Mm. It's hard. And I think, you know, what I kind of have resigned myself to is our whole notion of following the child. What do they need? Sometimes maybe they need you to put on their shoe or I don't know, like maybe sometimes they need that extra help. That might be it. So, I mean, I think every child is different and I feel like we're so grateful in, I mean, in Montessori, we have the space to really listen to each child's needs, even though it's hard on some days and with a full class like you have right now, I'm sure that's difficult. (laughs) But we have the space and the observation tools to get them to where they're going to be. And in Montessori, since we have the mixed age, since we have those years with them, we're not necessarily in that time crunch that I think a lot of the rest of the world is in, you know? Yeah. So anyway, let's talk about your 29 children in the classroom. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I'm doing the summer session uh, Mm -hmm. at our school and um, they've taken It's actually great because it truly is a balanced age group. Nice. That's amazing. It's a very balanced age group, which Mm. feels really nice and interactive. And because it's three different classrooms that got combined into this one classroom for the summer session, uh, and we have all been isolated as classrooms from one another during the year in COVID, even in the garden, we, the garden was divided in order that Mm. our classrooms were only playing with our own classrooms outside. And now they're together, some children from the different rooms. And I am just, I am loving watching oh. the friendships that are developed. developed That's so amazing. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. So are you guys still masked? Like what's the yes. COVID? Okay. Right now. I figured, I figured. It's, it's kind of a funny transition time because there's things like, okay, we're combining together. Yes. But we're still wearing masks and um, we're still keeping space from from each other as we eat. So Mm -hmm. lunchtime, I have divided the group into two groups for lunch since we can't combine the tables and there's not enough tables for everybody to sit at their own table at lunch. Mm -hmm. I've split the group in half and then half goes out to the garden while one eats and then they switch places. Nice. Okay. Okay. You're making it work. Yeah. That's, that's progress though. I think it is. Yeah. The children are understanding the routine now. It's been 
a week and a half together. Uh, okay, nice. Yeah, and, hmm. and they're happy with each other. I think it's going well. I think it's going well. That's awesome. Oh my gosh, that's so great. So as we kind of wrap up here, I wanted to ask you, you know, it's been a tremendously difficult time for education and educators and children and everybody involved. It's just been really, really tough. So what are your takeaways from the pandemic? And then any kind of advice you would offer to fellow teachers? Compassion and kindness, I guess. I think what I think I'm just, I guess the reason I come to that is because the pandemic has, it's trickled into the classroom through the children because our school has been in session since last June. So we went back in person quite early on in the pandemic as opposed to being online. And so I feel like there has been a lot of normalcy in our schedule as far as like the way that it looks that so many Mm -hmm. people are still attending school. And yet the world is still experiencing this pandemic around us. Um, Mm. So I guess I feel our experience has been unique because we've been back at school longer and not doing virtual as much as other people have. And, um, and yet I still feel like we've experienced like the emotional psychological reverberations of living in a world that is uncertain. Mm -hmm. And when that, and uncertainty brings fear, uncertainty brings fear. And so all we can do is be kind and compassionate to all the different behaviors that we're seeing because we never know what's happening in the lives of other people. That's right. Yeah. And I know that it's hard for adults. I can't imagine what it's like for a little person. He has no control. (laughs) No control to begin with and then stick their, you know, what they've known for a few years of their life and then going through something like this. But I do think that um, what you're telling me about them reconnecting in the garden and making new friends, that's such a beautiful memory. And I, I'm pretty positive that they're going to remember that more than the pandemic. Cause you know, yeah. And they're definitely going to be remembering cicadas. Um, oh yes. Summer. How could we forget? Cicadas. <laughs> they're so, they're everywhere. Like, I know. It's so, most of them are pretty into the cicadas and they're just like, Oh, I'm sure. Cicada beings. They're seeing how many cicadas they can get to land on their arms and their hands and their bodies at once and walking around saying, look at all these cicadas. <laughs> That's an amazing image. (laughs) Um, Hmm. um, Yeah, I think we've, we've, we've um, maintained a lot of positivity and a lot of love in the classroom, even through the whole year. And, um, and it feels good now to be, yeah, to be expanding our world, to be making new connections, making new more connections. So I love that. Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on and being a part of the teacher series. And thank you to everybody for listening. 
Once again, if you would like to nominate somebody or perhaps if you're interested in coming on the teacher series, just reach out to me. Send me an email. You can direct message me on Instagram, but I will respond. And I'm very passionate and excited about this project and talking to teachers all across the country and the world. So you can email me at allthingsmontessoripod at gmail.com. And thanks again for listening.